I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. attachment style this area of research was completely unpopular because it kind of falls under evolution it used to fall under an evolutionary uh, theory because it is an evolutionary theory it seems we are like other mammals predisposed to attach and it's also it's um it's also psychoanalytic theory so the developmental research in attachments so childhood attachment research is mainly dominated still by psychoanalytic types of approaches whereas um I guess my area, which is more social personality psychology, the way that we study uh, attachment is really, I guess, if you had to put a pinhole on us, we, we're, we're cognitive psychologists and, and, and neurocognitive psychologists. Mm. So, so it's so it's great that you guys, you know, when I hear, you know, sometimes I still meet people who haven't heard of this yeah. area, and I, I'm always amazed because it just, you know, obviously I'm I'm in a sense biased because. But it affects everything. Your attachment yeah. style is essentially how you regulate your emotions. So that's, yeah. that's what dictates how you regulate emotion. Yeah. So I, 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 all right. Let's. Well, we'll get right into it here. I'm I'm very excited about this conversation. Me too. And, I, and and um, you know, the a big reason for this is because um, uh, we're going to be talking today with Angela Rowe, um, a professor of social social psychology, um, all, all the way over in the UK. Uh, lovely UK. We got a, we, we, uh, we were, we're big fan. Taylor's a really big fan of, um, uh, accents. He does a really great UK accent. Taylor, why don't you, why don't you oh, show Angela? No, your, your UK no, accent? I'm actually please not the, do, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the accent person. Jeremy's, a, Jeremy's classically trained. I mean, I'm theater. not much of an accent person, but I, I can probably do the version <laughs> no, that Taylor does, which is like, no, really. hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hello, and, Bob. Oh, and Angela just left the call. Okay. Well, how about that? Um, Angela, so excited to talk to you today. We're, we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about attachment styles. And um, this is something that that I've I I'm I'm a little bit familiar with, and and the reason being is actually Bridie was the person who who um, brought it to my attention, uh, co-host of the other show that I do, Turn Me On Podcast. And Turn Me On, we talk a lot about like relationships and what makes our interpersonal relationships work, um, you know, our romantic relationship, relationships, our sexual relationships. Um, and when I heard of attachment style for the very first time from that context, I remember bringing up an article and I was like, whoa, this is really, uh, this is really fascinating. And, and it made me, um, it made me just kind of like do some like armchair psychology with myself where I was going, where do I fit into <laughs> these attachment styles how like as me a person when i show up in a relationship how am i showing up and and could could one of the could this theory kind of dictate the reasons why i 
act the way I act or the, the reasons why I feel the way I feel in particular um, romantic relationships. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like relationships, Myers-Briggs, but it has some sort of like <laughs> explanation as to why you are that way rather than some just like fluffy. Yeah, this is you. And, and so so right around that time, I was traveling in Toronto and I was with my girlfriend and her and I were having breakfast and we both went through this article about attachment styles. And it was really interesting, like for us to go through it together, not because we were like reading it going, oh, I guess that's me and this is you and this is how we're going to relate now. But it, it, it led to a really interesting conversation about our childhoods and the ways that we related to our upbringing, to our parents, um, you know, past traumas. And it like it actually we ended up having this really like beautiful conversation where we got to like know each other on a bit of a different level. And so the reason why I'm so excited for this conversation today is because I feel like by way of having a conversation with you, Angela, about this stuff, we're going to cultivate that same sense of curiosity in a bunch of people that are listening right now because attachment styles is very cool. It's very interesting. And again, I don't know much about it. Angela, you know a whole lot about it. So why don't we, <laughs> why don't we open it up with the very first question, which I think is like probably the, 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 the smartest way to open this up. What is attachment style theory? Uh-huh. Okay, right. So, so it, attachment styles are individual differences in our attachment behaviors, our attachment uh, working models, mental models. So I guess uh, just uh, I'll just summarize an enormous amount of literature in just a, <laughs> a couple of sentences. So it all derives from attachment theory. Um, now, you know, in the 60s, we could get to the moon and back, but you know what we understood from a scientific perspective about the rules and the cognitive processes that dominate our relationships were where you could write on the back of literally like a, a matchbox. Mm -hmm. So, so it's quite a new area of research. But essentially, um, attachment theory says that us humans, like all other mammals and many other species, are born predisposed to attach to caregivers. Um, and this is this is not dependent on learning. We, that that happens. You're born and you attach. Why? For survival. Mm. And you can see that really clearly in a human infant that scope has well, you know, very few skills. Um, but it, but it, you know, throughout uh, animal kind, you see it. Now, the one thing that makes humans distinct, even amongst uh, other primates, is that we attach to others, um, not for not that we attach to the same person for life, but that we need to have attachments throughout our lives. So if you think of some other mammals, you know, my cat, for example, I have a mother and a son cat. And, you know, they were very close when, when uh, you know, when uh, the Yupo was a, a little kitten, mm. but they hate each other now. So the hormones <laughs> that contribute to that attachment behavior are completely switched off. Whereas us humans, we remain attached to our children, to our parents, but also we need what our attachment relationships give us throughout our lives. So that's attachment theory. And that's all what we call normative processes. So mm. um, something that we all do, you know, regardless of experience. Attachment styles are slight modulations in, in, in our attachment systems and our attachment behaviors on the basis of experiences. <laughs> So very significant experiences in, a, in early life, but also later life. So if you have big, significant relationships, um, those influence the way that you think about and you see yourself within relationships. Mm. So let's think, you know, it's, it's easy if we start off with childhood attachment. Um, if a child, for example, has a very 
responsive parent. So if I fall down, hurt myself, and my parent responds in a kind of caring way, but also says, oh, look, Angela, you, you're actually going to be fine. Yeah, that must hurt. It's good. That's really good. Then I'm going to learn a lot of things about myself. Like I'm worthy of this other person's attention mm. and care. I'm going to learn that I, you know, I've been told I'm going to be better and I can rehearse that. It's like, okay, I know that this might hurt now, but I've been told I'm going to feel better. And you internalize that. And if you think of that by contrast to, for example, you know, somebody who, a child who is in a family where they are, if they hurt themselves, they're kind of punished or ignored. What do you learn from that over time, over consistent experiences of that? You learn that the self is the only thing you can rely on. You learn that others aren't there for you to help you when you're in stress or distress. And so in, a, in an exa- if you imagine this in an exaggerated way, because nothing is as clear cut, which we'll come on to in a bit, but you know, it could be that you have these experiences with one person for you know a particular period of time or what have you. But if you have consistent experiences like this, then your brain is designed to form mental models or schema, or they're called very different things in the literature, which essentially synthesize this information and give you a way of dealing with the world based on this information. And that's what attachment styles are. They're essentially these mental models that dictate how you are in relationships, how you feel about yourself in relationships, what you feel you can expect from others in relationships. And not only that, most importantly, they also dictate how you deal with stressful situations because that's where you learn. It's like when your parent um, or caregiver you know, says to you, you're going to be okay. <laughs> and here's some help or, or the opposite. Um, that that's, that, that's where you learn how you deal with stress. It's right. cool. The, yeah. uh, the tie with, we, we, I don't know if you're familiar with Gabor Mate, mm-hmm. uh, but we just had him on the podcast, um, not that long ago. And the, the, the ties to like attachment styles and traumas and, yeah, like, yeah. and like the patterns that you develop is really interesting well, yeah. yeah that's what that's why I, I it makes me think um when you're talking about attachment styles and then you give these two situations one where the the kid receives sort of love and support and then another one where the, the may, they, they get the sort of opposite of that does that create attachment styles that you sort of classify as quote-unquote good or bad or <laughs> yeah. is it just different yeah. like you have different uh, types of well attachment styles. i mean like so so um that's that's quite a big question so firstly Ooh. firstly what you're talking about is to get so so the the, the 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 positive one is secure attachment and um the more negative one i was describing is uh now the reason i hesitate is because throughout the history of attachment research which is quite short as i as i told you it's not very long history of research there have been different ways of classing classifying the insecure styles these right. days in so these days in adult attachment research and what i think jeremy you may have been reading about yes. is um the two insecure dimensions one of avoidance uh, which is the one that i was talking about self extreme self-reliance so people are avoiding extremely self-reliant you know, which is good which is another thing yeah. about attachment styles are adaptive and being a bit avoidant is a good thing this <laughs> you is, know this it's is, good to be self-reliant this is me from my childhood like this the reason why i asked the question too is because like i had the quote-unquote 
that I'm I'm calling the quote unquote bad experience. And yeah. I and in reading yeah. the article, I identify with the sort of like avoidant attachment. Avoidant. I mean, yeah. just just to give like you you guys and maybe people at home a bit of context. And and Angela, please like again because I'm I'm a ding dong. I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I dropped out of theater school. Okay. Um. Uh. If if I say anything here and you're like, whoa, that's super not right. Uh, please jump in. But the the article that my my partner and I were reading when we were in Toronto. Um, it broke down what we were talking about here in terms of like the different the different adult attachment styles that exist. And so um, Angela just mentioned that there's the the secure attachment style. So, you know, on the, on the article that I was reading specifically, it it it, um, it described a, a secure attachment style is low in both anxiety and avoidance. Mm-hmm. Secure attachment tends to lead to stable, fulfilling relationships. Um, then we have an anxious so here's where it gets like kind of interesting. Uh, there, there's there's anxious, um, preoccupied attachment style, and that's high in anxiety and low in avoidance. Mm-hmm. Anxious, preoccupied attachments can create relationships that thrive on drama or are generally lower in trust. Then you have a dismissive avoidant and then also a fearful avoidant. So a dismissive avoidant attachment style is low in anxiety and high in avoidance. This attachment style may lead to more distant relationships, sometimes stemming from fear of commitment. And then the fearful avoidant is, atta- is an attachment style that is high in both anxiety and avoidance. People who display this attachment style are often drawn to close relationships, yet they are simultaneously fearful of them. Mm. Is, 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 this is sort of similar to Brian, to the question that Brian asked, but is, do they all have... Do they all have pros and cons, or or are or are some of or are some of them like this is you know very heavy? I mean, I, I don't, most heavily. When I read secure, I'm like, God, I wish that I wish I had secure attachment <laughs> style. Like yeah. that just sounds yeah. easy. I Me guess too, there's probably yeah. a spectrum. There's a spectrum of how helpful they will be right. to your yeah. life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they do because they're adaptive. So at the time, they were useful. So when they were developed, they were useful. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess I would say, so you're absolutely right. So you described the four categories of adult attachment. Um, We we can think of them like that, but there are reasons why statistically thinking about categories isn't so useful. So we think... We think now about dimensions. So we all fall, all of us, in our trait attachment style um, on you know, one of these dimensions of avoidance or anxiety. And you know, at low levels of avoidance, like we like we uh, we were saying, Brian, you know, that can be useful. It can be really helpful. Equally, low levels of anxiety. So people who are high in attachment anxiety, Jeremy, you described it beautifully. That's exactly you know, drama and relationships, really jealous, mm. really focused on their relationships. But it's good to be focused on your relationships. So you're not going to miss something if it's going wrong. You can attend to people really well. So 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 it's positive and negative. The problem is when you're really high on one of these things or another. And if you have the other thing that complicates things slightly more, um, which, yeah, I mean, we may as well talk about this point, is that these days we think that you may have a disposi- what we call a dispositional or it's like a trait attachment style. So let's say, you know, I had very consistent, secure experiences in my childhood. So I grew up with a trait, like a big mental model like massive great one about security. So generally when I approach relationships, I'm secure. But then at the age of 18, I meet a romantic partner who treats me like hell, you know? Mm. And I learn, and within that relationship, I learn anxiety, I learn an anxious Mm. attachment stuff. So basically by adulthood and like in my lab, we play around 
we, we, we now know that most people have two or three attachment styles, if you like, that you can draw on. So in my, in my yeah, work, a lot of right. what we do is we activate an attachment style below levels of participant awareness, and we expose them to either tasks that are quite like early level cognition. So before they're aware, but so also it's not that only do they not know they're being primed, but they don't know exactly what I'm ask, we're asking them to do. So, you know, it's various cognitive tasks, but you get a real sense of how the attachment style biases the way that they perceive the environment a very early late you know, and before I, they know it's happening, you know, you can equally, pri- you know, activate someone's attachments and look at how it affects their judgments, their behavior, mm. loads of different things, how they are in relationships, who, you know, who they're attracted to, et cetera. Can, um, can but, you but explain, even, well, can you explain, sorry, like what, what, like that sort of how you study those things exactly? Because, yeah. because it's, sure. I, I imagine that it's so difficult to set up those situations, the ethics around like studying somebody, oh, how yeah. somebody responds in a situation <laughs> like that. Like, how do you, how do you actually yeah. study that? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, a typical. So, let's say I'm in. So, I'm particularly very interested ever since my PhD in really trying to understand how attachments are. So, we know that, like, if someone's like you described, Jeremy, like if someone's anxious, then there are all these things that fall out, all these correlates that follow. Mm. Um, my 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 initial big interest when I was a PhD student was how do attachment styles. So, if they work like other mental models that we know. So, for example, if I say to you a uh, I'll give you an example of a concept. And if you say the first thing that springs to your mind, then we'll take it from there. Yeah. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say a word and I want you guys, the three of you out loud to say the first word that comes into your head. Okay. You ready? Don't think (laughs) it through. Don't think about it. Okay. One, two, three. Hospital. Uh, sick. sick arm break oh so, so i said sick you said sick you said arm break arm break now that's a really you're watching too much example. ufc brian <laughs> that's a brilliant example of a mental model and that shows you the kind of commonalities like we all think sick but we think sick because that's our experience of hospitals it's really close to the 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 um element in this concept in this mental model of sick However, I would predict that Brian has had an experience with an arm break in a hospital relatively recently or something. <laughs> Not personally, yeah. yeah. I don't well, know why. Yeah, I well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, why? I yeah, was thinking I, when you from? when you said that, I went. I don't remember you breaking your arm. No, I didn't. But I, but it, like it, it's so interesting. So I'm I'm kind of used to this idea of like the mental model and and sort of thinking of this first thing. I I go to therapy a lot, and. Uh, and it's so interesting to think about where something like that, that I, I can't consciously think of why I said that. I'm not sure, but I, it would obviously been, it, it would, it would have been really funny. Yeah. It would have been You're really right, funny yeah. though. Like this conversation would be very different right now. If you and I said sick and Brian went kinky. let's dive into that <laughs> tell us about yeah that. I'm, I'm curious i'll have to talk to my therapist about why I'm, yeah that, uh, that's interesting with if you're not and... aware of why that's also interesting <laughs> 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 um, but you get the idea so that's yeah. a, a mental model it's yeah. just it's just you can you can actually uh, f- uh as a experimental psychologist you can tap into people's working model their mental models working model schema by doing those kinds of tasks, mm. but what you do that you embed those kinds of those kinds of tasks within like computerized speed in reaction time studies. I won't bore you with what that is, but basically there are there are ways in which you can elicit people's responses, the speed with which. So a lot. So what you guys did just then when I said hospital and you said sick, there are interesting things about that, like the word that you said, 
the speed with which you said it says something about mm-hmm. how closely connect, how central. Eventually, had you continued to produce words, you'd have ended up saying doctor, nurse, whatever, because that's what mm. people do. But the central thing for you guys was sick. And mm-hmm. and that says that kind of gives you a sense of how we can. So if if I if I um below levels of participant awareness, so for example, I on a computer screen, I present for 17 milliseconds. We happen to know that 17 milliseconds for the participant you can't see it properly you don't know or you mask the word so they've perceived it but they they're not aware they've perceived it and imagine i've done that with the word hospital and then i present them with the with the word canary after that they're going to be slower to to know that that's a word that you anyway there's lots yeah. of like reaction time mm. tasks you can do but um to try to tap into how attachment styles bias the way that we perceive right. the world. I, that, that was one of the, that, that was, that was ultimately the, like the reason that, um, that I, I reached out to you was because I came across an article that was talking about how insecure specifically, and, and, and this is great that we're, we're getting into, we're, we're kind of getting into the whole sphere of it, which is really interesting. Um, but specifically the, the thing that brought your uh, research to my attention was an article that talked about insecure attachment and was it called negative attribution bias? Was that what, was that what it was called? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. I found that I found that very interesting because because I because that negative attribution bias when it kind of explained what that is, I went, oh wow, I've seen that so much in myself. I've seen that so much in the people around me and just in just my everyday life. Being and negative attribution bias. I mean, I'm sure you can explain a little bit more eloquently than I than I can, but I'll I'll give it a shot. Which was basically. Um, attributing attributing a reason that's very sort of um, egocentric to somebody else's behavior. So, you know, you, um, I think that the, the thing that they used in the article was like, you, know, you miss a phone call, yeah. so, uh, you call somebody and they don't pick up and, you know, you, you didn't pick up because, you know, you just found somebody on the sidewalk and you're giving them CPR. I have no idea. I think that you're just being an asshole that I, <laughs> I, I that you're ignoring me and I start mm-hmm. to attribute all this negativity onto why you are treating me a certain way, although it has nothing to do with that. And then you assume that the attribute that they're embodying is that they don't care about you. Yes. They're not, they're not a caring person. The thing to the, Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The thing that I find so interesting about this, and again, just kind of relating this back to the conversation that I had with, with Kira in Toronto when we were reading about uh, adult attachment styles, is the first thing that I thought of was like, wow, it's so interesting to think. And, and, and again, like I'm, I'm going back in my own like sort of personal like calendar and looking at over the last, you know, let's say 10 years of my life, uh, the, the, the last like four romantic relationships that I had. Um, each person is coming into that relationship likely with a, an attachment style or two attachment styles that they're pretty familiar with, like, and maybe not familiar, but like innately is a part of them. And 
um, you get two people that come together. Maybe one is secure and the other one's dismissive avoidant. And that, that culminates in a, you know, a particular type of, of conflict within that relationship. But then you, you separate, you couple up with somebody, somebody else. And now, you know, what I'm hearing is that you, you, you're not necessarily locked into an attachment style just because of who, who you are. And so now this next time you go into a new relationship and perhaps you're feel fearful avoidant because of what happened the last relationship you were in. And now you're entering a relationship with someone who's anxious, preoccupied. And all of a sudden you have this whole new clash of, of like butting heads because, and then again, to this, like this point of, you know, attaching negative characteristic, um, negative attribution bias, negative attribution biases on these people. You know, you're placing these characteristics, characteristic characteristics on these people that aren't necessarily true. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it, from a from a from a vantage point of like pulling back and looking at your past relationships, it really is quite interesting to think about. Um, and also to think about like, where do you sit and and where have you been? I mean, you said when you had mentioned earlier that, you know, we're not really locked into one particular style in, in terms of these attachment styles. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I've, I, you know, thinking about myself and who I am, the, the secure attachment style, I've been there. I've had, I've, I I feel like I I know that feeling I've had that, but anxious, preoccupied for sure. Like that, you know, I can, I can pinpoint times in my life where that was like dominant in my life. And, and so, you know, I guess my, my question is, is how can these, like, how can attachment styles be and and I don't know if this is in your your wheelhouse, but like how can it how can these these attachment styles when looking at them from like kind of a simplified view, which seems that I, that's the way I'm looking at it, how can they be useful for us mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. entering a a new relationship or you know be useful to us in a relationship that we've been in now for you know upwards of ten years? Yeah, um, well, the simple answer to that is that insecure attachment styles, once they have passed their sell-by date, when they're no longer useful, they're not useful. And I think they're just not useful in adulthood. So if you're carrying around something that was a essentially a defensive mechanism in, in younger life into your new relationships, and this is an insecure style, it's not going to help. Mm. which is which is the other thing so you might have so like you're, you're absolutely right you have a dominant one and that kind of sticks with you but you can activate your other ones and and the wonderful thing about um you know what we know now about reinforcing mental models and changing mental models etc the really hopeful thing is and like what a lot of my work focuses on is actually reinforcing making stronger your secure models so most of us most of us, if we're psychologically relatively healthy, we have a number of, we have a big secure model and a number of secure relationships within our attachment networks, you know, so you might mm. be secure with most people, but in, but, you know, avoidant with your dad and, you know, anxious with your little sister or something, but you're also secure with other people. So within those relationships, and if you can, if the more you practice, so it's a very basic principle of cognitive psychology, the more you practice something, the easier, the more available it is in your mind, the easier it is to, to to think it again. You know how like when you've been rehearsing a song or something, or have, you know sometimes a word sticks in your mind. It's just there. It keeps coming back, and the more you think it, the more it comes back. And mm. that's just how that that's just how the mind works. 
that's that's just the brain. Mm -hmm. And so if you keep, so one thing we try to do is we do these repeated activations of secure prime. So even if you're insecure, you know, you come to the lab and we make you feel secure for 10 minutes this time and it changes the way you see the world and that's extraordinary watching that happen and then you know you go away and you go back to your normal style but the more you do it the more accessible the more available those mental models mm. are so the more likely you are to apply them within new relationships so you can re reinforce the good stuff and stay away from the crap stuff that you mm. don't need you know and i think you say how is it how is it useful i think you can reinforce security but also just knowing this us having yeah. this conversation about it it gives mm -hmm. you gives us tools doesn't it you think, aha yeah, yeah, this person's bringing out my insecurity yeah. or this person is highly avoidant probably best of you know best not go there or, yeah because yeah. when you yeah. when you don't think about it you know like when you don't have these this sort of model to go off of um i think oftentimes with with not knowing what we don't know, you just go about life mm. again, just going, well, I guess like I'm, I guess is. I fucking suck at relationships Dude. or, yeah. oh, well, I guess like, I guess this person that I was in love with just doesn't know how to love or, it's, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And, and yeah, you don't and, have and, a. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I was going to say, you know, like just going back to, to what Taylor was saying about the attribution work. And firstly, I should say that, you know, this is this is not this was my driven by my PhD student Dan Yang Lee and so she, and my other co-author Kathy Carnelli. Uh, it's not just my work um, at all, um, but this is really it is really, that's a really good illustration of that. You know the 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 links between insecure attachment and making negative attributions about your partner's behavior are so strong. I mean, this this was this paper that we're talking about is a meta-analysis. So it it reviews all of the literature on this, all of the scientific studies on this. And, you know, drawing all of those findings together, it concludes that there are some strong relationships here. The higher you are, in particular in attachment anxiety, the more likely you are to make negative attributions about your mm. partner's behavior or your attachment. Which which is just going, which so. just a road, which really is just a, a an eroding sort of like factor in a relationship, right? When you are constantly, you know, putting something on to somebody else that, you know, is, oh. could be completely fabricated. Of course, that's just oh. going to cause friction and tension. Absolutely. And then, yeah. Absolutely. Together. Absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the really interesting findings from relationship research in the last few years is about positive illusions, which is the absolute opposite. Mm. Mm, you know, you kind of think you could, there could be reason to think that, you know, being really accurate about your romantic partner, you know, knowing them really well mm. um, and knowing their faults, et cetera, is, is a good thing. You could think that that would be a really positive thing to know your partner really well. Turns out, best thing for us and the relationship is to have mad positive illusions about the relationship you know, think that your partner is kind of like the best and it seems to correlate so the more you think your partner is amazing in ways that i should add they probably aren't most likely aren't <laughs> you think they're really incredible that serves the relationship in so many so I, many i mean you ways. see that in children you see that i think you see that in children mm. you see that in children like we treat children that way a lot like even though yeah. we are you know anybody's child could have tons of of shortfalls whether that's physical intellectual um you know they might not be good at this or what we what but we <laughs> treat them with like this with with no less love and respect and we yeah. we imbue them with this positivity and we and we see them really truly through that lens regardless of you know whatever shortcomings they might they might have mm. yeah no absolutely you're absolutely yeah. right we do do that and i think um 
and, and with children, I think we do that. We kind of know we should do that. Mm. Whereas I think we're less, I don't know, informed, clever in our romantic relationships yeah. in a way. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I think that's also because I think people are really reluctant to think. So so one of the things I get in my research, or used to get quite a lot, is like people say, really, you study? Because attachment is the basically the phenomenological experience of attachment is love yeah and right. so and so and then as soon as people realize that they're like ha oh, okay so you're trying to study love you know the rules of love <laughs> shouldn't you just leave that to the poets how can science ever try and disentangle all this stuff mm. you know it's best for philosophers to do it so there's a kind of i think human resistance to trying to understand these things in an mm. intricate way because we feel it might detract from the the value and the beauty and the I know ephemeral qualities mm. of it mm-hmm. so, so yeah we're really blind about are you, what's are you familiar on. with are you familiar with Arthur Brooks at all Arthur Brooks I don't doesn't ring a bell so is okay. this a clinical psychologist no he's an author he's a he's a uh, social scientist um and he um he's He's authored a bunch of books. I'm just like recently familiar with him and and, uh-huh. and, and and actually and now I'm like drawing a bunch of connections with the things that you're saying and the things that he would he he really does like he kind of he 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 he's looking at sort of like the science of happiness and he and he kind of goes back to you know at the end of the day the root is love and and I think he he sees that as well that sort of like love is this like very complex and we, you know we we put we put we have this kind of like infrastructure that we've built around the word love, which I think you kind of explain there, like kind of uh, prevents us from really thinking about it in this more intellectual Mm. um, way and pursuit to try to understand it because we see it as like so ethereal. But there are, there is, you know, some concrete or, or maybe things that are, you know, just adjacent to love that are a, that are a response to it that we can look at really concretely and study like attachment styles. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think it's really important, actually. And um, I mean, it's great seeing, I mean, I must say, great seeing three young men talking about attachment styles <laughs> and interested in it. You know, this is like, yeah. I feel like my work is done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the best part is we'd be doing this even if it wasn't our job. It's so crazy to me that, um, like, I, I think that I grew up with this. I loved romantic comedies when I was younger, and I loved the idea of, like, these storybook um, sort of relationships that you would see in in movies and uh, read about in books, and then as I started to get older, I, actually, I honestly really not until I started going to therapy a couple of years ago. Only then did I start to realize the importance of truly developing a sort of level of self awareness about why you are the way that you are in the relationships in your relationships and in your um, identity of self. And, and so I think now of like, before I started going to therapy relationships, the success of relationships was really just a toss up. It's like, you know, you don't know, you don't know why you react the way that you react in certain situations, especially the ones that like the, the, the situations where you walk away and you feel bad about the way that you responded and you don't know why you reacted that way. (laughs) And then that sort of just becomes this like idea of who you are as a person. You're like, oh, well, I'm just fucking bad at this. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I just do this this way. This is just who I am. But the truth is that this is actually the way that you are because of 
the experiences that you've had in your yeah. past. And thank God we have people like like Angela who are doing the work to give us the answers as to why we are the ways that we are, right? Like that that is that's a perfect example as to why this work is important. You know, um sure, the, love might be this ethereal mystic thing that like really we do, we don't really know what like what what is it? What's happening? But we want to know. We want to know as much as we can know because that's the thing that's going to prevent us from having traumatic situations come up in our lives. It's the thing that's going to prevent yeah. us from, you know, from being the person that we don't want to be. Mm-hmm. It gives us the answers to actually show up in the ways that, um, that are more beneficial for everybody in your life, including yourself. So but to me, both of those things can go hand in hand. That like, that like magical feeling of love, you know, that feeling yeah. that you get that, like you just can't explain why you yeah. feel that way. I feel like that it that can be this mysterious thing, yeah. but the way to keep it is by being aware of how yeah. you react. It's and like how you I respond mean, th- to this situations. is an insane uh, comparison, but it's like the feeling of of LSD. It's <laughs> a wonderful feeling, and when you're on LSD, you're like, "Wow, this is otherworldly." Um, but when I also, you know, watch a, a a lengthy documentary about the actual like physiological things that are happening in the body and why LSD, what is it, what it does. It doesn't pull away from the yeah. wonderful yeah, right. experience that I had doing LSD that one time, you know, like it's still, <laughs> it's still just lovely. Interesting you know, like, analogy, yeah. but it worked. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, you, know really, you know what popped up for me when you said that, when you said a toss up with a relationship, I thought of how, um, and, and I don't know if you can, if you can sort of fill us in on how attachment styles might like influence this or how we might maybe, uh, maybe avoid, maybe they might uh, sort of like pause for a moment when we do this. But when we create a relationship, I think a speci- specifically a romantic relationship, I feel like the first, I mean, it depends on the relationship, but the first like few months NRE. of a relationship where you are just like... Yeah, new relationship energy. Where it's it like, is just, it yeah. doesn't matter. You, like, they could, like, you know, they could be like... <laughs> You know, like psych. I I was actually Hitler, and like, and you'd be like, I don't care. <laughs> like you're yeah, just I like, love. Love. Yeah. That's, that's called lust. I think. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, lust and, and then and then you only and, last a couple of years if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. And then the relationship. I mean, the relationship in the first few months, compared to where that relationship ends up, what that relationship ends, yeah. it becomes after a lengthy period of time. And if you stay together for a long time, I mean, they're completely different. Yeah, they're completely okay. different. And how you yeah. sort of. Like is are you putting attachment styles on hold a little bit there in that in mm. that initial phase of a relationship yeah. before you really find out like kind of yeah. who you are? I think so. I think I think I think you're blind, aren't you? In that, in that mm. first in that first period, I think you know we can have repeated what you know experiences like that, and we're biologically designed to do so because otherwise, you know, you need to be around someone to, you know recreate reproduce, mm. don't you? So um, so that keeps you nice and bonded, but so. So within that relationship, so we, we kind of consider that there's a minimal period you need to. So there's a couple of things here. There's your attachment style and how does that influence it? I mean, I think even within that very lusty, heady initial stage of falling in love, I think it is going to influence sometimes, you know, exactly. So if you, for example, I think you gave a good example earlier, Taylor, about, you know, Someone doesn't answer the phone. So what happens there? Oh my God, someone who's high in anxiety might panic. Oh God, they've gone off me. They, you know, they've met somebody else. They don't want to know. They're trying to pull back from the relationship, mm-hmm. et cetera. But someone who was secure would think, oh, they're busy. 
yeah, right. so, so it does so it starts to seep in um mm. relatively early on but we don't we don't consider that you have an attachment relationship with your with your partner until you've been together for a certain i mean oh, some people say two two years i think that's maybe too long but you know at least six months so yeah. so um so from that point of view attachment processes don't get don't start to be examined um, really into something that um something that kind of has been itching at me like uh, as we've been talking is is the the um if you've got uh if you've got a hand if you've got a few attachment styles and you know they sort yeah. of they, they you know you've got what dominant one and maybe one or two or three other ones that sort of pop up depending on the relationship mm-hmm. and everything are they are you are you developing different attachment styles because as you grow up you've got different social circles and you attach differently to those like you've got your parents and then you've got you know you start going to school and you start making friends and there yeah. may be you know, have a different experience with your friends as you do with your parents and then you've got you know maybe adults in your life that are not your parents like teachers and coaches and things like that that treat you differently is that why we had developed you're it, absolutely multiple? right <clears throat> so we see so if you think of our lives we have um so, so basically your attachment styles are based on your att- experiences, consistent experiences within your attachment relationships. They don't come from anywhere else. They don't come from acquaintances or perhaps even teachers at school, or but they come from those key, key attachment relationships. And as you identified, those change, change over time. So any he- healthy adult, all of us here, hopefully (laughs) will have between two and five attachment you know if you've got if you've got five attachment relationships any point in your life that is your blessed I mean that's incredible that's brilliant most of us have two three you know five is you're doing really really well like you mean like by that do you mean that you've got you know you've got five relationships that are you've got five different relationship um like key relationships that are like yeah but they're like really important so they're the people you go to so so if you let's say you had an accident who would you phone first or if you're like some terrible tragedies happen who would you phone first and it's that list of people that you would contact those are your attachment relationships that's a shorthand for working out who they are but as you as you go through life they're different people you know it's it changes you've got your mom and dad are central and you've got maybe a sibling and then as you reach adolescence it's peers you know best friends you start to get romantic partners so you have we have these attachment networks and within those, so you can be attached to somebody who makes you insecure. Um, and it's who you meet, who you, you attach to. So like the example I gave of, um, you know, meeting a romantic partner who like make is awful <laughs> and develop you, with whom you develop an anxious attachment style, then that kind of experience does it. Or if you have like a best friend who was really treated you uh, in such a way that you developed like an, an avoidance style mm-hmm. because you, that's your friend over time. If for some reason you're locked into this attachment relationship and it's very important and that you, you learn something there, you know, and you create this mental model. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's how they change. Interesting. I'm curious. I'm curious for you personally, <laughs> um, studying this and learning about these things um, over the course of your career, how has that impacted or influenced your personal relationships oh god this is really embarrassing because i don't think this is anything to do with my area of research because i think like with with a lot of people who are experts in a particular area they don't necessarily apply it as well but i have been with my my husband we met when we were 
he was 17 and I was 18 and we've been together yeah it's 36 years now so so I think mm-hmm. so how does it affect me do I think that every time we have an argument N- no <laughs> I'm not very good so we still because we're still locked because we got together so young we have some patterns of behavior that are just so embarrassing I couldn't even you know sometimes <laughs> have arguments that are like teenage arguments we've not um so I mean that's awful but I guess uh, the importance of it. I mean, I talk to my kids about I've grown up children and uh, I talk to them a lot about what we should do. And I try to do what I should do. Um, and I try to be mindful of it. But, you know, I'm completely human and mm. all the attachment experts uh, I know, and mm. we're just people, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's right, really- right, which is why I find it really interesting because um, like studying that and and it's it's cool to hear that you've been together for, for so long too. But I am really curious of like, you know, being a young teenager and then going to school mm. and then and then eventually graduating and coming in to study this field and starting to learn about these things. Did you see patterns in your relationship oh. that you were like, oh, fuck. Oh, like, I, I, <laughs> I think, you know, I'm a psychologist. So probably like I think all psycho- all people who study psychology I've got issues they want to work out in their minds. I think mm, you know, right. all of us. That's And then I stayed on and did a PhD in attachment where you can. But, to, you know, it's, you know, I have had a quite a dysfunctional um, upbringing in certain ways. And I mm. think I needed to understand what was happening with me. So I started to see things in myself that I, I didn't I didn't quite get. And mm. psychology, I guess, uh, gave me. I mean, there are some people who study within psychology. There were 52 subdisciplines in psychology. So there are people doing very physiological mm. areas like, you know, um, vision science and uh perception within vision and things like that that that, to whom it wouldn't apply but a lot of a lot of us studying psychology have questions that we want to answer Mm -hmm. about ourselves essentially (laughs) and you just get completely obsessed with it and stay on and do a phd and then that's it and your your world is research is um is um like hearing you say that you 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 met you and your husband have been together for you know since you were since you were teenagers and I, i i i I've been in a relationship with my wife and we have a baby together. We've been together for almost 12 years and I, since, I, since I was 20. And, and Aww. I, and I remember, I remember, um, I remember Kyla's mom um, saying something, Kyla's a few years older than me. And I remember Kyla telling me that her mom was like, you know, like he's young, he's 20. And like, you know, he will undergo like a personal evolution that's quite significant in his twenties. And, you know, just be prepared for that because that will happen. And that might very much disrupt your relationship or end your relationship. And, and, and thank God you did go through that. <laughs> I did. Yes. 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 Very much. I did go through that and it was for the better for everybody. Um, and, uh, but, but you know, you change a lot over the years, you know, you go through and, and, and it's, and it can be very easy for two people to, to change a lot and and separate from each other because they've changed so much. Um, so is is it do do you know like long lasting relationships? Uh, a relationship like yours, a relationship like mine, is developing into um, over the past more than a decade now. Is it really? Is it a is it a sign of is it a sign of like really of of secure attachment or of compatible attachment styles mm. that allow somebody? To with that that allow a relationship to withstand the 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 sometimes um, uh, sort of like aggressive evolution that people go through or or turbulent mm. evolution that people go through over time. 
I mean, you, you stay you stay in it. I mean, all things being equal, and if you don't have pressures in other directions, I guess one stays in it because you get from it what you need. You know, yeah. and I think uh, at the very core, what we need to feel validated, we need to be with people who believe in us. <laughs> you know in our kind of our ideals and who we want to be and I think if you're reinforced on those levels then that can be very strong and, and almost addictive I think it's it, mm. it's important to have that in your life you know mm-hmm. um it's right I mean congratulations it's not so often you, you hear of long-lasting relationships I'm a bit of like an island in my in right. my world yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but here in the UK divorce rates are so high and mm-hmm. I, I was gonna you know, say Speaking of divorce rates, they're like my parents were divorced, and Taylor, oh. both your parents and Kyla's parents yeah, are, are still too, together. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and wow. so, okay. and so, I'm wondering, like, does how yeah. how bad does divorce fuck up kids? Because, <laughs> yeah. like, I know personally through my experience in therapy, it's a yeah. like the pure reason why I have a a more avoidant, dismissive, dismissive yeah. avoidant attachment style is because of my parents' divorce. Yeah. Um, I, th- like it, yeah. I think it's really, really interesting. I think, you know, this is not speaking out of my research expertise, but as a child of divorced parents, you know, and like some people do it really elegantly and the kids are fine and the parents mm-hmm. have community. Somehow they mainly make it work. But I not think, mine. you know, that thing, I, <laughs> I don't know if you... <laughs> I don't know if you experienced it, but when your parents got divorced, but there's a kind of children panic, don't they? They mm-hmm. really panic. It's almost like they know that, it's not just they. I remember myself and my sister. We all we panicked, panicked. panicked. I, can't, I don't mm. even know how to describe that feeling. And I think in retrospect, you think there's something. You know, children know what's good for. You know, they know what's good for them. And two parents together fighting for you behind you is very different. Uh, you might be very lucky and have good step parents that come later, and some people do. But you can have nightmare step parents too. And I think it's a risk so so is divorce good or bad for children it's it's a risk for children because it could yeah. go it could be great mm-hmm. and it might not be great but I think, you're dividing yeah that i mean that speaks to the fact that like if there's a parent out there who is you know going through a divorce or has gotten divorced like it has to they need to fucking put the effort in to to make yeah. things work in an amicable way for the sake of the kids because i know yeah. for my like my parents still won't talk like this I, they got divorced when i was 15 and that was you know 18 years ago and i could not for the life of me imagine them in the same room together having a yeah. conversation mm-hmm. and which is crazy oh, to me yeah, yeah. relationships are so interesting like just just a couple of days ago i was saying to kai we were having we were sitting down with zaya and we were talking about zaya's my daughter and she's mm-hmm. eight months old and we were Aww. talking about uh we're talking about family and like, and, and, you know, like familial obligations and like sometimes how that can be very stressful and how it can also be fantastic. And I don't have very close relationships with my extended family. Um, but I am very close with my, my, my close family, my immediate family. Um, and then, and then Kyla is sort of the opposite. She has like this massive extended family and she, but she feels like it's very, very stressful because she doesn't feel like she has very much of a connection with any of them because there's so many of them that it's very hard to mm. have a close relationship with any of them, even the ones that she connects with on a, on a really, really like authentic level. Like she feels like, you know, if they weren't in her family, they'd be best friends, but because they're a part of the family, she can only, she only, you know, there's only so much to go around. So anyway, and we started talking about this and we got on the topic of, of how I feel about family. And I, and I feel very much so about family that my chosen family is much more, is, is, it takes up a huge portion of 
how I feel, uh, the people I feel close with. And you, you know, you're very much part of that. Brian and I met when we were 10 and I moved across the street mm -hmm. from him. Which I wonder why, if, <clears throat> if your feeling of that comes from our shared experience. Of, I said, I said that <laughs> to Kai, I went, I went, <laughs> you know, Brian's, Brian and Dennis's parents got divorced when they were 15. And like, you know, it was like you and Dennis and your mom and you. like and me. <laughs> and I was like, and I felt like you guys were my family and I was part of your family and, 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 and you were part of mine. And, and that sort of like filled that gap and made me sort of start to have, like grow how, how I feel and how I identify like what a family member is, mm. yeah. which is different yeah. from like the person that's, yeah. you know, related to me by, by blood. Yeah. I don't know. I just very, like thinking about relationships on all these different levels is so yeah. fascinating. That's Which is hard, exactly. I love you guys. Ex yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we love you too. Many. <laughs> exactly the reason why I was so excited to talk about this today. Um, you know, relationships are uh, a wonderful thing, but they are also an extraordinarily complex thing. And uh, in order for us to ensure that the relationships that we have are fruitful and that they are meaningful and that they last, we need to understand how relationships work. And so that's exactly the reason why I was so, so stoked to be able to talk about this with you today, Angela. Uh, folks, if, if you're curious about the article that we touched on a number of times throughout the conversation, um, it is called Insecure Attachment Linked to a Psychological Phenomenon Known as Negative Attribution, uh, attribution Bias. Um, the, the link is in the show notes. Um, and again, the uh, that was brought to you by uh, Dan Yang Lee, Catherine Carnelli, and our guest today, Angela Rowe. Uh, Angela, thank you so much for taking time out of your oh. schedule to sit down and chat with us. This has been thank just you. It's great so, to so talk. delightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's been great. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Thanks. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sipway. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.